Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Do you say that? I'm playing this phone in the sky! The future has come to pass. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that examines the Left Behind series so that you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right. Well, we are here having finished book three, Nikolai, Rise of the Antichrist. And this is our third off-the-record episode. We're going to talk about things we noticed. We're going to talk about things that stuck out. We're going to talk about our overall feelings on the book in general. And then we're going to give it, as we have with the previous two, a rating of horsemen out of four for how we felt about Nikolai. So uh, you got any initial thoughts there, bud? Uh, We've said this a few times before, but miles ahead of Tribulation Force, this one was much more enjoyable. And there actually wasn't as much as the previous two I could find that I didn't like. There was a few bits of it, sure, that I was like, ugh, I'm not a big fan of this. But for the most part, it was a decent, you know, it was a decent airport novel. There's not a lot in it that is poorly written. I think that a lot of people devoured these books back in the 90s and the 2000s specifically because they read easy. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, there's not a lot in this that really challenges you. It's action-packed. It's a page turner. It kind of leads you by the nose from one plot beat to the next. And I think we talked about this with the first one in terms of kind of turn your brain off thriller fiction. It ain't bad. Yeah. Like I'll, uh, I'll turn this on, on an audio book sometimes when at work and like, it just, it makes things a little, just go by a bit smoother. Like, it's just like, okay, let's see what Ray and Buck are doing this week. Yeah. It's got kind of that comfort food vibe. Yeah. You know, like, again, it's not really challenging. Uh, It's not deep fiction. Like, I'm not having to rewind and go, wait, what did they say? Wait, what's happening? Even if you do miss something, they'll tell you again in five minutes. That's another thing that I noticed. I'm glad you brought that up because I was kind of thinking about that. I was I was prepping for this show is that they repeat things a lot. You know what it actually kind of reminds me of? What's that? You know, when you would watch like Saturday morning anime, like when you were a kid, you watched like Pokemon or Digimon or Yu-Gi-Oh or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you'd have like certain episodes that were clearly filler, but it was like dub filler. Yeah. Like the company that localized it would do basically just a clip show with the voice actors, the English voice actors talking over it just to catch you up. And it was like 20 minutes of your time wasted. Right. Okay. I can kind of see that. That's what a lot of this stuff feels like, where they will go through plot events that have happened previously and tell you almost word for word what happened. And I know why they do it. You know, it's just in case somebody happened to pick this up and it was their first one. We talked about that. Stanley, every comic book, somebody's first comic book. But it actually makes these easier to consume because I'm not having to keep copious notes and tracking lore and plot events and everything like that. Because like, oh, they'll probably remind me if it's important. It also makes it easier to identify the throwaway stuff because they won't mention it again. You're right. (laughs) 
<laughs> some plot threads will just get dropped completely. And you're like, well, guess that wasn't important. One other thing I liked is like, we got a good ample part of just really tense action sequences. And some of them were kind of campy, but other times they were actually like really, really engaging, which was, um, which was cool. I got good news for you. If you like that stuff, you're going to get more of it. I've been going a little bit through Soul Harvest. I haven't finished it yet. And that keeps up on some of like those big bombastic moments too. The specific action set pieces and some of the more thrilling moments, like, like the stealth stuff, the kind of covert espionage type stuff, especially when it comes to like undermining the GC, will only continue. The series is amping up to that big war-esque showdown between good and evil. So the farther we get in, the bigger and more frequent are those vignettes going to get. Yeah, one of the things that I have noticed now, because you are kind of going at our normal recording pace, like you're getting into Soul Harvest, I have gone for my second read-through through Soul Harvest, through Apollyon, and I'm now in Assassin's. Oh, nice. And I'm kind of just trying to prep myself. And then I'll go back and do another read through for when we actually do the show, reminding myself of what I read back in middle school. You're going to see that this is more of a turning point than I think it seems right now. You know what I mean? I get you. This is one of the last books where things are relatively normal. Ah, okay. Grab the pilot. The our, our 757 has taken off, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Because like uh, the first two books are kind of establishing the world, establishing the characters, their lives and stuff. But now we're in Nikolai. This is our antagonist nameplate book. From there, we're just going to get more and more of just, they're no longer in their daily lives anymore, so to speak. Exactly. It's also some of the weirdness is kind of starting to creep in. Oh, yeah. In this one, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. What stuck out to you as some of the more supernatural weirdness and things like that? a lot more of like the Holy Spirit stuff started coming into play. Like people would just like, like gasp and like, I have a premonition coming on. I need to talk to this person. So our light side uh, people, so to speak, are receiving a lot of that. Yep, that's a real big one. You definitely hit on the stuff that I was already thinking, a lot of the gifts of the spirit mm -hmm. stuff that we were talking about earlier. And I wanted to circle back around to that because I know I mentioned that in a previous episode. Not every Protestant or not even every evangelical denomination interprets the gifts of the spirit thing as literally as I think I was taught growing up. Because mm -hmm. when you're Pentecostal, man, the spirit is everywhere. The Holy Spirit is a huge part of uh, what you're taught growing up. And when I say Pentecostal specifically, I was not in like snake handling, that kind of like primitive Pentecostal. I was in the Assemblies of God, which is a much more mainstream version of Pentecostal thing like your Southern Baptists in terms of size and scope, but they, you know, raise their hands and speak in tongues. Okay. So when we talk about the gifts of the spirit, things like dreams, premonitions, and sometimes speaking in tongues, the impression of the spirit, meaning that like you just get this overwhelming sense that you have to do something right now and being led by a force that is not from within. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. You know, I'll just leave that hanging in the air, whether that is, something that is real or whether it's something that, you know, people have inside them that they would have done anyway. You know, I think that people really do feel those feelings, but where they come from, that's ambiguous. Gotcha. Uh, I'd like to talk a little because they mentioned something that I'm not sure if is going to come into full effect 
later in the series, but they quoted a certain verse, uh, which was your young men shall have visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And we haven't really talked much about visions because like there's some denominations of Christianity that are really big into that. I know visions are a big thing throughout uh, world religion too. And I just found that kind of interesting because when I was entering into religiosity again, this is going to start getting into more personal anecdotes as well. I actually had what you would call quote unquote a visionary experience. And like I said, some visions can be psychosomatic to a degree where if you want them and believe that that you will have them hard enough, you will. I just thought that was an interesting verse to be brought up because that's another one of the gifts of the spirit kind of aspect that some people will claim to have. And while, uh, like I said, I've experienced states that I, I would consider quote unquote visionary, that is something that a lot of people can use to manipulate groups of people because they can be like, oh, oh, I have a vision coming on. And it's just the vision just so happens to coincide with some of their personal agenda and goals that they're uh, trying to put out there. Since you brought that up and you made that point about manipulation, if you like this podcast, if you like this weird religious stuff, and especially if you like history, cannot recommend the Dan Carlin hardcore history episode, Prophets of Doom, enough. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's about the Munster Rebellion in the 1500s, and it's about a charismatic group of uh, folks that break away from the Catholic Church and barricade themselves in this one city in Germany. They were so radical that even Martin Luther didn't want anything to do with them. It is a crazy story. It's like a five-hour-long audiobook that Dan Carlin put out several years ago. So Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, Prophets of Doom. Google it. Buy it. It's like three bucks, I think, on his website. Totally worth having, and it is a wild ride. But you mentioned the visions and the dreams thing, and I think that I want to make a distinction between what most Christians mean when they say dreams versus visions. With dreams, it's exactly what you think. It's a dream that you have while you're unconscious. God or a messenger thereof comes to you in a dream and says, hey, this is something you need to do, or you see something that is significant and is then later interpreted by someone possibly with a gift of the spirit, or perhaps you just sort of interpret it on your own and act on it. Visions are typically seen as something that is waking. Mm. You go into a trance state or some kind of state of elevated or enhanced consciousness. How you achieve that visionary state is different depending on what religion you're in, what sect you're in. But in Christianity, generally, at least, you know, in the Pentecostal kind of evangelical circles, it is in a state of, and this is a very specific term, religious ecstasy. So it's when, you know, you're praying intensely or you're studying intensely, you're contemplating God intensely. Like you said, if you are believing hard enough, a lot of times you can literally manifest and see the stuff that you're, you know, your brain will believe stuff is there. And, you know, I've known people that claim to have gone through those things. So that's kind of the difference between the two. One is waking, one is sleeping. I think in this book, Buck, experiences a dream, which is an echo of Joseph, as in Mary and Joseph, being told to flee to Egypt, which another biblical callback, biblical illusion. Like we said, as we're starting to get into the more supernatural stuff, I say this every time with every one of these books, is it will continue to ramp up as we go through. Mm -hmm. The supernatural events and occurrences will become less passive, I guess is the best word. They won't just be feelings and impressions and dreams. They will start to become more tangible. And that's when the weirdness really kicks into high gear. But just so you guys know, there's no slowing down from now. Everything is now starting to really hit its stride. And we are kind of moving in that direction. 
Did we talk about the 216 thing on air? We may ha- I, we may have, but it'd be good to give him a fresher anyway. Okay. This book, we really get the number 216, 216 mentioned multiple times. The Condor plane that Nikolai builds and then has Rayford pilot is a Condor 216. Nikolai's office number is 216, though it is not on the second floor. And most of you guys listening to this already know if the Antichrist is going to be associated with a three-digit number, why is it this one? It's that's not the one. That's not the one we all know. Why is it not the the one from the song? Why is it 216? What does this mean? There is several ways you can look at it, too. Yeah. Uh, so I'll go ahead and do the one that I noticed that you didn't, and then you can go into your little spiel. Oh, yeah. Revelation 21.6. First, I'll share that with you. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water and life. Which is kind of when you look at Nikolai through his, what he's putting to like the airwaves of who he is in global community, that start kind of the persona that he's trying to cultivate. He's just trying to make sure everyone in the global community has like what they need and stuff like that. He's a very reverent figure and more of uh, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That will start coming into play as soon as next book. I can imagine it only amps up from there too. Right, totally. So you've got that connection. Another one is actually that 216 is the numerical value of Givura, the fifth Sephiroth in the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. So I am absolutely not an expert on the Kabbalah. I'm not an expert on things like right-hand path magic or anything like that. But correct me if I'm wrong here, the Sephiroth are the different reflections of God, I believe, in the Kabbalah, and they're symbolized as circles. The progression of human toward godhood or toward an understanding of God, you have to move through those different circles in order to um, sort of ascend in your enlightenment within the Kabbalah. Is that right? That that checks for me. Like I said, I'm not an expert either, but I know a, a little bit just because that's something I'm a little bit interested in. Right. They are all reflections of the hidden names of God. So the idea is that as you are ascending through those different understandings from understanding to understanding, which actually is from the Bible, you are reflecting different aspects of the one God. One of those values is 216. But probably the most surface level should have been obvious to me. I didn't think about it. The number 216 is six times six times six. Oh my God. Yeah. So all, <laughs> it, all, it all comes together. Yeah, it's six cubed. So they, they tried to be sneaky with it. They had to get six, six, six in there somehow. And rather than make it obvious and say, oh yeah, he works in suite six, six, six. And his plane is named six, six, six. They went ahead and did uh six times six times six. Cause that kind of goes back to that other thing we were talking about where in this book and the last one, and then in some of the books to come characters who are not believers are going to start to catch on to the you guys think Nikolai's the Antichrist don't you yeah we even got uh Verna like that that whole arc like, oh yeah Verna specifically is like nah you guys straight up believe that my boss is the Antichrist mm-hmm. you guys are nuts but if she said that and they were able to point to the guy's office and go oh I'm sorry the guy who works in office number 666 isn't the Antichrist all right it would be a lot harder for them to deny it 
So I think we're going to see kind of as things move forward, the next book is literally subtitled The World Takes Sides, which doing that one third of the way into the series, and I know it's technically a 13 book series with some prequels. I'm not counting Kingdom Come. I'm counting from Left Behind to Glorious Appearing as kind of a single completed work. If we want to divide it up into thirds, Soul Harvest is is reaching the one third mark like Nikolai is reaching the 25% mark here so we're kind of moving over some specific thresholds like in this one we kind of move to the end of the sealed judgments so how did the judgments hit you for this one they were pretty action-packed it was interesting especially when we got to uh sealed judgment six because the great earthquake at the very end it was a out of the book so far it was like the best like out of all the endings so far like that one was the 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 most uh, action-packed and thrilling so i really liked that as the uh as the bookend for nikolai yeah and you know what i didn't even mention the blood moon oh yeah it kind of reminded me it was definitely that moment in Bloodborne when you kill the spider and the blood moon rises like it had that exact same that light that comes out of that blood moon perfectly what they described there and that's it could be a really great movie if you shot it right and you had a good director on it and you rewrote all the dialogue Right. It's a striking image I guess is the best way to say that Uh, don't make this a movie they already tried like twice I really enjoyed that helicopter ride because that helicopter ride at the very end did so many things. It kicks off the earthquake, which has a great lead up like Buck driving down the road in the suburbs and seeing all the animals running away mm-hmm. and seeing the street lights and the stop signs just barely starting to sway. That's a great image. And then you have the power go off in the global community building right as Rayford's about to get kind of in trouble or he's being brought in front of the board. Right at that moment, power shuts off. They have to escape in the helicopter with him and Mac. And then you get a 100% heel turn with Nikolai basically kicking people off the struts of the helicopter that are trying to escape to safety and only save himself. Right. And that was a pretty good moment for uh, Rayford too, because at the very end, he like finally basically tells the antichrist to fuck off. (laughs) So we get the first act of open defiance against him. Yep, won't be the last, <laughs> but but definitely the first. I don't know why, maybe because he bears a resemblance to the guy who played him in the movie. For some reason, like face-wise, I see Rayford as kind of Patrick Warburton. Okay. Definitely not the voice. I couldn't put the voice on him for that, but having him beating up like Nikolai, who's kind of a smaller dude, <laughs> just grabbing him by his lapels and slamming him up against the helicopter, like that's a good moment. Like he's been wanting to kick Nikolai's ass pretty much this whole book and then he finally does it it's a great way to go out yeah as for the other uh seal judgments that occurred in this book we got uh seal judgment four which was the pale horse pestilence and death from revelation six verses seven through eight and then seal judgment five which was the martyrs of the tribulation in revelation six verses uh nine through eleven all right to you does that count as a judgment not really i know because I'm, I'm pulling this directly from the left behind handbooks that was in mind when they were writing it but i didn't notice those happen overtly through the plot that's when martyrdom really technically began in the series but it's i guess it'll become more overt as things go along so the martyr question i 
can't say this without it being a huge spoiler, but there is something that happens in a couple of books that is going to throw the question I asked earlier in a, a couple episodes ago of was Bruce a martyr into question? Because I originally said no, but there are events that pop up later that I had forgotten about that make me go, okay, maybe on the technicality definition of being a martyr. So we talked about the black horse and the pale horse just being consequences of the war. They kind of just yeah. trundle on past those, which it does happen. Like there is, they use the war as a method of population control through disease and through famine and, you know, everything like that, especially in like economically disadvantaged areas. Something that, you know, always happens. You've got a dictator who wants to raise the standard of living for people in his empire. A good way to do that is by wiping out a bunch of people. Right. Because now that just cuts down on the burden on resources. And I know that sounds horrific. And and literally Thanos-like, but that seems to be what Nikolai's plan is. We talked about the Georgia Guidestones, I think, in episode one of this book. Yeah. And so he's going right along that, what Tim LaHaye thinks is the Illuminati playbook. Can't ever forget, Tim LaHaye legit thinks that there is an Illuminati and that this is what they want to do. But then with the fifth judgment, the martyrs in heaven, this is a tough one to parse, and the book tries to basically say what it is you don't get to witness it it's actually during bruce's eulogy ray describes the martyrs in heaven in their white robes bowing down before god and begging to be avenged mm -hmm. the martyrs are standing before the throne i think they're just the tribulation martyrs i don't know if the bible is specific but talks about martyrs and how they are begging for god to avenge them and god basically says in due time hold for a little bit my wrath will come gotcha. what follows on the heels of that is the wrath of the lamb which is the great earthquake and uh oh that reminds me of another little supernatural moment that isn't entirely well okay so it's at the very end of the book during the earthquake when the guy says god kill me kill me and then the earth just swallows him yeah that was another fun one yeah that gets very literal um so they say that they will cry out for rocks to fall and crush them yeah no one will be safe the possibility of a global earthquake on that scale is i think pretty much zero i'm not a seismologist i'm not a geologist so I don't know, but that seems very unlikely. And I think that they even do this later on. They're like, earthquakes are caused by tectonic plates shifting. This can't happen that way. But they just sort of gloss right over it. From reading the Left Behind handbook now, now that we've unlocked that forbidden knowledge of hearing straight from Jerry and Tim's mouths, what they were thinking when they wrote some of this, a lot of it is, oh, yeah, yeah, we made that part up. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I think that that's kind of unfortunate and not great, not a good look, considering that a lot of these people didn't read the Bible and just take these as, as scripture, which is what I think we've talked about since episode zero. People don't read the Bible. They take this as scripture. And then you have the exact authors going, I mean, Tim probably believes it'll happen. Even Jerry goes, yeah, I don't know about that. I kind of teased him about his weird thoughts about how this is going to happen, but that's what he believes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so not kidding. Among, so even among them, like, Jerry's looking down at his binder and going like, I, I don't know, Tim, this seems like a little far-fetched, but if, if that's what we're doing, that's what we're doing. Pretty much. <laughs> I, I'll have to find the quote maybe in a future off-the-record episode. I'll read it. But I, it was one that stuck out to me in the Q&A section between the two of them of him going, yeah, that's what Tim believes. I like to tease him, but... Uh... <laughs> 
It's really funny. So we talked about martyrs and I can't get away from this particular book because we have glossed over or rather we have decided to to leave the best for last in talking about what probably takes up the largest chunk of this book, which is the escape from Israel to Egypt with Buck and Zion. How did that work for you? Well, it was one of the most over-the-top action scenes we ha- we've had this far. There was a few parts in their escape that I'm just like, okay, that's absolutely outlandish because of like uh, the moment where Zion has to go pee and that ends up saving him, which, okay, I-, I guess. And then also at the very end where they're just like trying to like overclock this van, getting ready to just blow it up. That was... That was a lot. Yeah, throwing the cigarette lighter into the the five-gallon bucket of gasoline and kicking it out the window. Like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) And then them getting shot, but, like, not enough to hurt. Like, Buck, of course, gets shot in the foot, which I've never been shot in the foot. I imagine it is horrific, but you know, it's not, at least in in most cases, it wouldn't be lethal as long as you got it treated, but it's like getting shot in the shoulder in a movie. Like, it's like, oh yeah, well he can hobble. It doesn't matter. And I guess I can kind of imagine what he's going through. Cause when I was little, I had like a nail go through and completely through my foot. Oh my God. (laughs) What? uh, Yeah. I was, I was being dumb and I was like 12 and I was walking around like, a wood pile without shoes on and just a nail went through my foot uh, and I had to get just basic basic treatment on it and I was fine within like two weeks, but yeah, not fun. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess I guess that wasn't, at least for Buck, too bad uh, based on your personal experience. But one of the things that this starts to set up um, that they don't come right out and say it, but they're getting into a massive sort of sea change in terms of how believers are going to be recognized Mm -hmm. and that is the 144,000. Now I can tell you that the 144,000 portion of revelation is kind of vague. It talks about 144,000 individuals from the 12 tribes of Israel and how they are all sealed. I think it's 12,000 from each tribe, you know, totaling 144, 12,000 times 12. Each one of them is empowered to preach kind of like the two witnesses are. What you're seeing is the beginning of that. You have Michael, who is uh, an example of that. You have Annas, who is an example of that. And so this is where the book kind of starts to push more and more to move the majority of the action away from the U.S. And we're going to see that in some of these future books is that a lot of the action is going to start taking place elsewhere. Israel specifically, even though there's a lot that's been going on in Israel since the book started, the focal points are going to be more and more and more Israel-centric. Iraq, too, because of New Babylon. But we're moving the action away from U.S. soil a little bit to focus on these different demographics of people. Does that make sense? Yeah, I kind of noticed that, too. Because definitely this one started to, like, we were in New Babylon a lot in Nikolai, like more than more than we have before. And yeah, and definitely just because this is a Bible fan fiction series, we do have to start getting like more toward the place that the Bible took place in to start like really solidifying it as a Bible fan fiction. Exactly. So we got some more FaceTime with Eli and Moisha as well, since we're talking about the Israel stuff. Another poll from the handbook, they asked them point blank who Eli and Moisha are, and they do say Moses and Elijah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting though, because in the handbook, I don't remember who responds. I think it's Tim. And it says, oh, they're Moses and Elijah. He even doubles back and says, 
uh, we kind of went back and forth on who they were going to be, like whether they are reincarnated or whatever, because Moses died. Um, those of you who don't know the full story of Moses post the uh, Prince of Egypt. After the Israelites walk across the Red Sea, they leave out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Moses leads them into the desert and ultimately to Canaan. You know, after the Ten Commandments, after all of that, Moses reaches the edge of the promised land and because of some technicalities from some previous stories is not allowed to enter and is actually buried at the edge. He he succumbs to old age. He's able to actually see the land itself before he passes away, and he does die. Now, I think in a previous episode, I mentioned that Elijah does not undergo a physical death. He was actually taken directly to heaven by God. Apparently, this is a sticking point for Tim LaHaye because in the Bible, it says it is appointed to a man once to die. So they do not believe in any sort of reincarnation. They think that that's antithetical to Christianity, to God, to God's plan. But apparently it didn't bother him too much because he literally says that in the answer. He's like, yeah, well, we worried about the Moses thing because it's appointed to a man once to die. But eh, whatever. They just sort of gloss over it. (laughs) That's funny. It is funny. And I think that that's something that opened up for me in this book. We are going further down the train of they're just going to have fun with it. And I don't think that's a good thing. (laughs) Like, I'm kind of sitting here watching a little bit in horror as they're starting to play a little bit more fast and loose with not just the revelation stuff or how it's going to be interpreted, but kind of the ideas behind what the Bible says. And that's going to bring me back around. And, you know, I want to hear from you on this as well about the morality stuff and the ethics stuff, specifically when it comes to things like murder. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause everyone, we got a lot of murder teasing in this series where some characters were straight up uh, like ready to kill a man and then other times like they straight up do like did, did the people that buck just blew up with that bus or did they, did they just die yeah and buck just sort of doesn't think about it yeah rayford prays to god to let him kill nikolai michael has literally put bullets in people's heads and is proud of it. This is a brand of militarized Christianity that I think is super dangerous. And yeah, I think we're going to only see more of that. It is the militarization of Christianity is going to continue. So this, when we kind of look at Nikolai as a whole and I don't mind saying my boy didn't get nearly enough screen time in the book that has his name on it. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, definitely. Because for a, a book named Nikolai, the the Rise of the Antichrist, we don't really see him too much. I mean, we have a we have a few more of him on TV. We have the big turning point with Nikolai's character where he's fully masked off, and you see, okay, definitely without a doubt, this is uh, an evil dude. But other than that, yeah, this this could have used more Nikolai. Yeah, I mean, we got to see him give orders to blow up the West Coast and a few other things. But other than that, he doesn't really get a lot of play. And then at the end, of course, he has his moment, like you said. As we go forward, the resistance to the forces of Satan through arms is only going to increase. And I think that that is, again, not a good thing. So as much as I enjoyed this book, like it was a fun book to read, I had a good time, would read again, I think there's a lot more dangerous stuff in here. Yeah, and definitely as we build up to, as I said before, the big war, that's just going to get more and more overt because the more you try to frame being a Christian as, oh, you have to participate in this big, giant battle 
the more that begins to, I guess, become part of like your mission in faith. It does. And I think, let's be honest, heroic combat narratives and stuff like that, like the heroic myth of like strength and arms and things like that is sexy. Yeah. It sells. It's a reason why we go see bazillion dollar movies of a guy in a armored weapons platform suit punching a giant genocide monster. Yeah. We love that. Like, it's cool. Like, we like violence. Redemptive violence, restorative violence, uh, heroic violence. Those are all things that are sexy and they sell. Yeah, and conflict itself is at the core of stories, which is good to have, like, put in there if you want to, like, amp up action, really intensify the plot. But when it comes to these books, because there's so much moralization and interfacing with the Bible, people will start to, I guess, fantasize about that um, aspect. Like people will start to fantasize being your Michael uh, when he has like, when he's like pulling a gun on people to like check to see if they're believers or not. That stuff will affect you. Yeah. And it so sidelines the Prince of Peace narrative. Mm-hmm. Like the being the Prince of Peace is kind of Jesus's whole gig. Yeah. Look at the amount of times he was violent, which I think you've got like like just one. You got the money changers in the temple. He was mad at money at the at the money changers. That was it. And all the times he was passive. Actually crack your Bible open and look at it. I mean, I it boggles my mind that there is so much of this warrior like Jesus. And look, I know that there's a lot of historical precedent for that too in different branches of Christianity. I'm gonna get real nerdy here for a second, but there are like Frankish tombs and like Viking tombs and stuff that had been contacted, you know, by Christian missionaries, like Nordic folks who had adopted Christianity, Franks who had adopted Christianity, Germanic tribes who had adopted Christianity. There are archaeologists that have uncovered their tombs. They have depictions of Jesus Christ on their tombs because they were Christians. But Jesus Christ is armed Uh. and often taking poses and is shown in settings and scenes that would be more appropriate for Thor or for Odin or for these war gods. So I get the idea that when Jesus adapts and when Jesus hops cultures, he can take on those different aspects of that culture. I do think that in modern 21st century America, I understand why that fits. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. Yeah. Like, I like it. And uh, I actually wanted to jump in of a bit of a a personal story for me real quick, because I only returned to any idea of religion last year. And I adopted the religious identity of Christian universalism. And to me, that is taking like the the religion I was raised in and desired if uh, if like no one else was influencing how I believed what I would uh, choose. And I kind of constructed it like that because I want it to be almost like a dialectic or a conversation between those two ideologies to see how they would fit in a person's mind, like if they were just interacting and coexisting. At times, they're in conflict, and at times, they're kind of in homeostasis. But I've kind of noticed, as I've kind of begun to 
be more exposed to more of the Bible and then this book series, obviously. I know we talk about this isn't scriptural canon, but it's very much a cultural milestone for American Christianity and very much reflects a little bit of the branch and ideologies of that I was raised in. I've kind of made the decision that I need to begin to move towards something that's a little bit more coherent and less internally conflictive. And this podcast series has kind of helped me find myself in that. So I thank you for uh, starting it with me. And I also want to know each of these off the records, I'm going to kind of check in to where I'm at with my current stage of religious experience, because I really want to make a point with this podcast that the things that you believe in your religious framework will echo throughout your life. It will reverberate. And you have to be very careful what you put in there. And I'm not trying to discourage anyone's religious beliefs. Uh, Obviously, you can believe what you can. But I think a good metacognition of what you're putting into your mind is a very good thing to want to cultivate. It's just as much as the food that you put in your body and keeping track and uh, making sure that you are responsible with that will affect your health and stuff like that. So I, uh, I just wanted to touch in with that, because as I said, we, uh, in previous off the records, we are in Pascal's casino and (laughs) parts of this podcast have kind of drawn me to want to explore other parts of that casino that I apply to my everyday life. Awesome, dude. Like, I'm glad that this has kind of, you know, got you on your own spiritual journey. I, I mean, I can honestly say it's got me on one too of re-examining stuff that I used to believe, stuff that I used to take for granted. Even though it's not really changing my outlook on faith and belief, it has opened up more dialogue with, you know, loved ones and people close to me who I would never normally interface with on faith, at least not anymore. But now having something to kind of talk about and be able to pick their brains on, it has really opened that up for me as well. So I'm glad I'm glad you're getting something out of this. And we hope you guys are, too. Like, I know these off the records are just kind of us just shooting the breeze about how we felt. But I hope you guys are getting something out of this. And yeah, you kind of just said something that I think is becoming a mantra for us when it comes to religion, because we didn't set out to make a religion podcast. Uh, We set up a podcast that was about some silly books from the 90s. But you said when it comes to spirituality and faith and religion that you kind of get out of it what you put in. Yeah. So you get out of it what you put in, not so much that you're just going to get what's there on the paper. So would you go so far as to say that faith is a mirror, not a map? I I would would definitely (laughs) say that. I'm very glad we happened upon that phrase. Yeah, and... Even to return back to what I was just saying, like, because there's a lot of, like, inner conflict. When you're raised in a Christian family, there's always going to be that fear where you fear hellfire. You fear the um, the concept of eternal damnation. And that's hard to really separate from. So the the me making my religious identity one of conflict is uh, is a representation of that mirror. So I just wanted to I wanted to throw that little bit in there. Cool, man. Well, hey, let's um, let's go ahead and bring this on home as we've now closed the book on part three. We have eulogized Bruce Barnes. The sixth seal has opened and we are now going to move forward into even more of that conflict with book four, Soul Harvest, The World Takes Sides. As the world hurtles toward the trumpet judgments and the great soul harvest prophesied in scripture, 
Rayford Steele and Buck Williams begin searching for their loved ones from different corners of the world, from Iraq to America, from six miles in the air to underground shelters, from desert sand to the bottom of the Tigris River, from hope to devastation and back again, all in a search for truth and life. All right. Cool. I think I'm ready to start that one. How about you? I am I, I, just from the parts I've read so far. I am excited to sink my teeth into fully uh, analyzing that one. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and uh, and get to it. But first, we can't leave. We're not allowed to leave legally. We can't leave. Though I'm handcuffed to my desk until we give this one a rating. So I'm gonna let you go first. Out of four horsemen, what are you giving Nikolai? I'm gonna give it a three, just because I uh, I really liked it, but I don't think this is the best that we're gonna get. So I'm gonna give it a three, but it was so close to being a four. I might give it a 3.5. Yeah. Three. Oh, dude, I, I think 3.5 might be me too. I might have to deduct for the murder stuff. Okay. If I do that, I'm gonna have to do that for a lot of other books in this series. So I'm going to probably stick around. It does drop off a little bit in the third part. Like I'm trying not to give it exactly the same number as you. I I feel like I got to be a little harsher. You know, I'm just going to give it a solid three. Okay. Just because I think that they can get wackier. I think that they can get more entertaining. This was good. And I don't want to have tribulation force goggles on of like, this seems like such an upswing from the second one that I am I'm blinded by that. So I think I need to be conservative and say this one gets a three. Okay. So three horsemen out of four. You're giving it three point five. Yep. Okay. Cool. So yeah, there's our ringing endorsement. Um, if you were able to make it through Tribulation Force, thanks for coming along with us. Because now I think things are only going to get more interesting from here. Uh, Soul Harvest is an interesting one, so I can't wait to get that started next week. Got any final thoughts? Nope, I think that will round us off. All right, kids. Well, that's going to do it for our third off-the-record episode. Thank you so much for joining us on another edition of I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. I'm Gavin Russell. Uh, Until next time, uh, don't shoot a hole in your boat with your gun. It's not a good idea. It will probably sink. Bye! Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at RapturePod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. You astray.